Father, as we just sang about Christ, our great Redeemer, we go to your word knowing that it's in your word that we find Jesus. We find the testimony of Christ's life and death and resurrection for us. I pray that you'd help us right now as we seek to go back in time to Ecclesiastes and to hear the voice of the preacher who is living on the side of the cross waiting for the Redeemer, waiting for the expectation, waiting for the fullness of time to come and you to send your Son. I pray that you'd help us hear the call to fear you and to keep your commandments, the call to live a life full of purpose and meaning in the midst of a world filled with vanity. Would you help us hear that this morning? And would you help us learn how Jesus changes everything about that? Would you help us see in Christ the fulfillment of all these things and the, the hope that you have brought us? That the preacher was waiting for, but that you have brought us and given us and that we get the pleasure of looking back on and trusting in. Would you strengthen our faith in Christ Jesus as we go to your word? Feed us with what we need this morning as we finish out this wonderful book. It's a good gift from you. Would you work in us by your spirit, we pray, to help us understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, friends. If you don't if you have a Bible with this morning, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. When we began this journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, I started out by reminding us of the first story we're given in the scriptures. It's a story of a man and a woman living together in a beautiful paradise. A home that they have where they have everything they could ever want and need. And it's all been given to them as a gift by the gracious host. A world full of yes, a world full of joy and abundance and beauty. But it's a story that doesn't end there. It's a story that we read very quickly in the first pages of Scripture. A story that gets seemingly spoiled by a thief coming into their home. A thief coming in that doesn't come to steal anything, but instead comes to convince them to sabotage the very home they've been given. To convince them that in this world of yes, because there's one no, Their gracious host, their Lord, must be holding back from them. Must be depriving them of some good that they should be entitled to. And this thief that came in and convinced our first parents of this, convinced them that the best way to respond to this was to soak the whole place in gasoline and burn it to the ground. If this garden is prohibiting us, they thought, from getting what we want then we're probably better off without it. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that they would be better off if they sought the one thing they couldn't have than all of the good that God graciously gave them. We know from the story in the start of our Bible that they did take and destroy this very good gift of the garden and their life in the garden with God. But what they found when they had burned down their beautiful home is not the gain they had hoped for. They found that instead of gaining more, 
They lost everything. They had destroyed the good gift and taken all of creation under the sun that was very good. As the creator said, they had taken all of that and subjected it to futility in the curse. They had rejected the very good of creation under the sun and instead were given a life under the sun full of toil and trouble, full of thorns and thistles, full of discouragement and despair and even death. Our first parents were cast out of Eden into the wilderness and left as gardeners to try to cultivate this wilderness. Gardeners who had never seen a weed before. And here was a wilderness full of weeds. Here was a ruin full of the wreckage of what they had done. How should they live in this world? That's what Adam and Eve were left to figure out. How do I live now in this world? That's a result of my sin. My rejection and rebellion against God. God's people have been trying to figure that out ever since. How do we live now when we were created to be in Eden? How do we live under the sun in the ruins of Eden? The preacher... Thousands of years later is still wrestling with that question, right? We began our series through Ecclesiastes noting that the preacher was going to wrestle with the reality of life under the sun in the ruins of Eden. And he was going to try to figure out how can we live a life that's filled with purpose, filled with meaning, a life that actually has some gain when everything under the sun seems meaningless, seems vanity, seems as the preacher uses, hevel. We've seen, as we've walked through Ecclesiastes, a survey of the wreckage of the ruins of Eden. We've walked through with the preacher as he looks under every rock to try to find gain. And as he examines every corner of this creation, trying to find meaning and purpose, trying to find some good, as we've walked through him with these ruins, we've seen some things. Right? We've seen that in this world, we are filled, this world, excuse me, is filled with broken hearts. We've seen in the beginning of Ecclesiastes that no matter what you try, wisdom, pleasure, riches, success, none of it will ever satisfy you in a lasting way. We've seen that you can't find gain in groaning things, and that because of sin, All of creation under the sun groans. This leaves us with broken, empty hearts, longing for a gain that can't be found, longing for fulfillment that doesn't come. We've seen in the ruins under the sun not only broken hearts, but broken relationships. The preacher sees a world, and we see it even now, a world that's filled with injustice. A world where in the place of righteousness, wickedness sits. In the place of justice, injustice. A world filled with oppression where the preacher concludes it might even be better to not actually have been born. We've seen a world filled with envy of neighbor where any man's striving that we do comes from our desire to one-up someone else. We've seen a world where wicked rulers are in charge, where fools are set in high places, a world of chaos and disorder that leaves relationships broken. 
We've seen as well as we've traveled through this world with the preacher broken days. The preacher says over and over, there'll be many dark days. There'll be days of adversity. There'll be days for weeping and mourning. Times for war. Times for killing. Times for casting stones. All of these kind of things. We've seen even that the crooked days that come are made crooked by God. As we've surveyed the ruins of creation, we've seen that these broken hearts and broken relationships and broken days lead us to broken minds as we try to understand it. The preacher tries a couple times, right, to think hard and to use wisdom to understand the order in all of this. How does it make sense? And his conclusion is always, we cannot understand it. Wisdom is limited. And the more wise we try to be, the more we try to put our hope in wisdom to understand and make sense of all this, the more vexed we get. The more distraught our souls become. The more broken our minds. We've seen ultimately that the ruins of Eden are full of broken lives because death overshadows everything we do. This was the ultimate point of the curse on our first parents, wasn't it? That if you disobey, if you do not fear God and keep his commandments, what will happen to you? You will surely die. And we've seen as we've walked through the ruins of Eden with the preacher that this is true. That you and I will surely die. And that death will steal everything we love. Everything we could possibly hope in in this world. In the midst of this ruins, we've seen this brokenness that is overwhelming. We've also seen as we've traveled through these ruins, tiny glimpses of good that remains. There is remaining very good, right? The preacher identifies it, and we talked about it last week, that we ought to rejoice in simple things like feasting, like fellowship as we share that together with one another, when God restores relationships. We ought to enjoy the fruit of labor and toil. This is what God has given us. The preacher calls us this our lot. But this little gain, this little good, this, this, this very good that remains is not enough to stop the preacher from concluding that all is vanity. Right? He starts his sermon there. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In chapter 1, verse 2. And he ends his sermon there, chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is hevel. All is vanity. All is futile. All is meaningless. All is frustratingly mysterious under the sun. The preacher knew this when he started out. And he concluded it when he ended. And his response to that was where his message ends and where the narrator sums up his message, what gives us hope. Because if the answer to all of life, to our striving for meaning under the sun, is just vanity of vanities, all is vanity, then it's hopeless. Nietzsche was right, and there is no reason to go on. But if there is meaning, if there is purpose, if there is a path to true and lasting joy, then there's hope. And that's where the preacher ends. He doesn't end on vanity of vanities. He ends in the voice of the narrator 
with pointing us to true and lasting hope. The answer to all of this vanity, the preacher says, is in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. He writes this in the voice of the narrator, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is where Ecclesiastes ends. This is the summary of the entire book. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, the main point of today's sermon is our whole duty is to fear God and keep his commandments. When I first meditated on this, and as I was trying to prepare this message today, I thought in my brain, this is too simple. This doesn't seem like a satisfying answer to all of the brokenness that we've observed under the sun. Fear God and keep his commandments. It seems too simple because in my own heart, I want more about the whys and the hows and the whats, right? I don't like turn-by-turn navigation. It freaks me out a little bit because I don't know where I'm going. It says, take a left here, and then it says, in 500 feet, take a right, and that weirds me out. I want to see the whole map. I want to know where everything is headed. I want to know that as I turn down this dark alley, that at the end of it, there's a bright light. But we're not given that under the sun, right? We're given this one answer, fear God and keep his commandments. We're not given the whole map. I also don't like this answer, and maybe you don't either. Because I feel like I am impatient. I want the results now. Fear God and keep his commandments is a command, an exhortation to wait. And I don't like waiting. In our culture, we want things now. We live in a McDonald's or a microwave culture. And this tells us that we have to wait. This is, as the narrator says, the whole sermon The sum of the matter, he says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard in verse 13. This is what we get to work with as we try to understand the preacher's message. So instead of responding like I'm tempted to in my heart with just this is too simple. What do we do with this? Let's think a little bit about fearing God and keeping his commandments. And let's read it in the context of the end of this sermon, and try to understand how we can do this now, how this isn't actually as naive an answer as we think. Fearing God means, first of all, that you are not God. We've seen all through Ecclesiastes, as the preacher has hinted at this idea of fearing God, and even said it explicitly sometimes, Like in chapter 5, when we talked about coming to God's house in a circumspect way, we saw that fearing God means you are not God. The preacher's message in some, as we walk through the ruins of Eden, is that you walk through the ruins of Eden as a creature, not as the creator, not as the one who gets to see the whole picture, not as the one who designs the whole plan, but as the one who is part and experiences it. Under the sun, in faith, fearing God, trusting him. See, fear of God is 
a response that we have in our hearts. Our deep awe of God, our deep respect for God leads us to a complete trust in God. Leads us to conclude that we are not God and that someone else is. And because we are so needy, we have no choice, even though it's a good choice, to, but to trust the one who is not needy, the one who does not need us, but who created all of this. Fearing God places God at the center of all of reality, which is not really us putting him somewhere he's not. It's us recognizing where he already is. Right? God is at the center of all reality, under the sun, in the ruins of Eden. There is this truth that God is still God. That God is high and exalted and lifted up and creator of everything. That everything is still under his control. That he is at the center of all reality. And what that does for us, when we look at God that way, when we understand that that is who God is, that puts us in our right place as not God. And that puts everything else we see and experience under the sun in the right place too. Everything we would fear instead of God pales in comparison to God. And so when we fear God, we don't fear other things. When we fear God, we rest in trust in him. And the other things that would unsettle us that we see under the sun don't. Because we're firmly held to a firm foundation. This attitude of fearing God, this, this heart disposition, leads to an action in the preacher's mind. That's why he says, fear God and keep his commandments. This attitude of fearing God leads to the action of keeping his commandments, obeying him. Keeping his commandments, we know from scripture, when we hear commandments, we think of things like the Ten Commandments. Or we think of things like God's law under Moses. We think of the new commandment that Christ says in the New Testament that you love one another. But it's really an old commandment. It's recapturing the Ten Commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. We're called to do this in response to fear of God. Because God is in the right place at the center of all of our reality, we shape our responses to our reality under the sun based on that truth. We live out fear of God by loving others, by loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what it means to keep his commandments. And we read in scripture over and over again that keeping his commandments leads to life. Keeping his commandments lead to life. We trust God, we obey God, and we live. This is ultimately what Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the garden, right? Trust God, obey God, and live. Enjoy this bounty of all that I have made. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is Adam and Eve's original purpose in the garden. This was their whole duty to do. As the preacher says, our whole duty is still To fear God and keep his commandments. What this means for us is that the purpose that we have on this earth, what we are to do in response to the ruins of Eden, in response to life under the sun, what we are to do is the same thing Adam and Eve were to do in the garden. 
Fear God and keep his commandments. Another way to say that is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion, work and keep the garden, cultivate God's presence on earth. That's what his people have always been called to do. And even though so many things have changed because of the wreckage of Eden, that hasn't changed. That's still here and present for us. The preacher says that our whole duty is to fear God and keep his commandments. How does that address the vanity that the preacher sees under the sun? How can we fear God and keep his commandments if nothing matters? We can't. So what that means is, because this is the whole duty of man, because this purpose is still here, that means everything matters. That means that the preacher's conclusions that all is hevel is not the whole story, is not the end of the story. It's not calling us to conclude that it doesn't matter what we do and we might as well go and live our lives and enjoy while we can because we're going to die. Even though sometimes the preacher sounds like that. He still believes in a greater purpose, a greater calling, a greater meaning that actually leads us to life and joy. And that's fearing God and keeping his commandments. Zach Eswine, in his book, Recovering Eden, which is on Ecclesiastes, it's a wonderful book. He puts it this way. He says, the fear of God does not lead us to escape the strivings and traumas of once Eden. The fear of God empowers us to enter it and with his wisdom to live and to speak a wise life in our lot through the ebb and flow of our seasons until we return home to him. We fear God and we keep his commandments and we show by doing that, that everything really does matter. This is the answer to vanity. This is the path to gain. This is the secret to a wise life. This is the sum of the whole Christian life. Fear God and keep his commandments. It hasn't changed even though our first parents rejected it. This is still what we're called to do. How do we do that though? How do we go about that? The preacher gives us some guidance in that. He's given us a bunch of guidance in the letter already. Like the whole letter is really an explanation of what does it look like to fear God and keep his commandments under the sun. So we've seen a ton about how to do this. But I want to draw our attention to what he gives us here at the end. Look at verses 9 to 10. The narrator writes this, he says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. How do we fear God and keep his commandments? First of all, we have to listen to wise words. The preacher has given us wise words in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's given us words of truth. That show really what this world is like. And that show really how we ought to live as followers of Christ. Not only that, but they're words of delight. They're words that bring joy. And you might ask, like I did, how can we describe what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes as words of delight? There's some, sure, that are encouraging. And those are the ones we we pull out and we quote or we put on a pillow or something like that. 
but most of Ecclesiastes is, is really depressing words, not, not super delightful words. How can they be words of delight? The answer is in what he says next, verse 11 and 12. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these of making many books. There is no end and much study is weariness of the flesh. The reason the preacher's words are words of delight, even though they're hard words, is because of how these words work, what they do. In verse 11, he says they're like goads. We're not very familiar with goads, but essentially, essentially that's a pointy stick for prodding cattle, for moving cattle around where you need them to go, to be safe, to be nourished, to be cared for. The goad is for the cattle's good, and yet the goad often stings. These words of the preacher are for our good, even when they sting, because they're prodding us along the path to life, along the path to fearing God and keeping his commandments. His words prod us in that way. Not only do they sting us, though, or prod us towards life, they stabilize us in life. When he says they're like nails firmly fixed, I think a, a better way to put that is, is like tent pegs. Like tent pegs hammered into the ground. If you think about a tent, if it lacks any kind of stakes, it's going to either fall down on its own or it's going to be blown over as soon as a wind comes. Right? But if it's staked down firmly into the ground, they're hammered in. It's going to withstand the storm. The preacher says that his words are like these nails firmly fixed. They're going to stand firm in the storm and they're going to hold us firm, stabling us up, stabilizing us in the midst of life under the sun. In all of the unknowns, in all of the uncertainties, in all of the heartaches that come, the days of darkness, the words of the wise continue to stabilize the Christian's heart. Right? That's how they work. We ought to listen to those words. The preacher tells us that these words are sufficient. He says in verse 12, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. I like books. I like reading. I like studying. I can attest that sometimes studying is weariness to the flesh. Often it is. The preacher's point is not that these things are necessarily bad, but that trying to go beyond these, to study and know and use wisdom to discern what God's plan is in all of this, is mere speculation. It's not firmly fixed like the words of the wise that are given by the one shepherd. It's not goads that are going to be guaranteed to prod you on to the way of life. We have been given in God's word everything we need for life and godliness. And the preacher says, listen, you want to fear God and keep his commandments in the midst of this uncertain world? Listen to his words. Listen to his voice. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. We read this about scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Everything we need is in God's word for us. We need not more books, but more obedience and more attention to this book. Fearing God and keeping his commandments by listening to his word. The words of the wise, you see, are a roadmap for us to be able to fear God and keep his commandments under the sun. They help us. All the preacher has given us is help towards that end. So one application for us this morning, one of the encouragements I want to give to you is reread Ecclesiastes after we're done. Don't let this Sunday morning be the last time you're in Ecclesiastes for a long while. Go and look back at it. Consider these words. Meditate on them. Let them lead you in the path of life. Not only that, but dive into other hard Old Testament books. I don't know about you, but I was intimidated going into Ecclesiastes. Because it's confusing a lot of the times. And what we've seen through our study is that though it is confusing and challenging, and though there are still things in here that I don't understand and that you don't understand, these words prod us in the direction of life. These words stabilize us in the midst of this storm. So I exhort you to take and read and be guided in that way. Listen to his wise words. In addition, the preacher wants us, in order to fear God and keep his commandments, to live in the community of faith. Notice when he says that this is the whole duty. Look at verse 13 again. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. If you look at, if you have the ESV, it has a footnote, or the duty of all mankind. This isn't just your duty. This isn't just my duty. This is our duty. Fearing God and keeping his commandments is our responsibility together. As the people of God. We've learned over and over from the New Testament that godliness is a group project. That fearing God and keeping his commandments comes in the context of living life together with God's people. So one of the ways we can learn to fear God and keep his commandments under the sun is by doing this. God gives us fellow duty keepers to keep this duty together. And God gives us, as he did in Solomon, preachers, right? Or we read about in Ephesians 4 that God gives preachers and teachers and evangelists, etc. for the sake of equipping the saints for the work of ministry so that the body may be built up into maturity in Christ. We live in community with others, the community of faith. We listen to his words and we hope in the future promise. Look at verse 14. One of the reasons that the preacher gives for fearing God and keeping his commandments is this. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is a warning to all who would continue to live in rebellion against God, right? This is the warning that Adam and Eve experienced the very real real reality of and that God's people have been experiencing the reality of time and time again as they stray from fearing him and keeping his commandments. This is a warning to all of God's enemies that if you do not bow the knee, you will be judged. And yet, for saints, those who take shelter under the shadow of God's wing. This is a super, super encouraging verse. This is a comfort 
after looking starkly at all of the reality under the sun of injustice and oppression, all of the reality of brokenness under the sun where things do not go as they ought, but things are flipped on their head. This is a promise that one day every wrong will be righted and everything will be made new. This is a promise that there is nothing that will not be noticed or accounted for. Every secret deed will be known and judged. Everything that happens to God's people unjustly will be judged. Everything that happens that breaks so much of this beautiful world will be judged. This assures us that everything matters, even though it looks like heaven, looks like it doesn't matter, looks like vanity. Everything matters because everything will be judged. So the preacher gives us these three things, listening to wise words and living in the community of faith and hoping in a future promise. But these things were given to Adam and Eve too, right? They were given this command, fear God and keep his commandments. And they were given wise words from their creator. They were given a community of faith in one another. And they were given this promise that if you do this, it will go well with you. And yet they failed. This is the same thing that Israel was given in the Old Testament, right? Israel was called to fear God and keep his commandments and given these specific commandments to keep. And they were given prophets and preachers to teach them how to keep these commandments and to remind them when they stray. They were given a community, a covenant community chosen by God. And they were given hope in the promised land. And yet it wasn't enough. Israel still failed. What's different? Why should we expect anything different for you and I? Why should we not come away from Ecclesiastes just discouraged because fear God and keep his commandments is just another call to do more, to try harder? I'll tell you why, friends. It's in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. What's different this time is that the one shepherd has come. It's different this time is that we have the one shepherd. You see, when the narrator references the one shepherd, when he says that these words are given by one shepherd, he's looking beyond the preacher, Solomon. He's looking to something else. And it's this promise that's been germinating as a seed in all of the new te- or all of the Old Testament. It starts in in Genesis 3:16, after the fall, after our first parents burn Eden to the ground and give in to the temptation of the serpent. They're told that one day the offspring of the woman would come who would crush the head of the serpent who would do what Adam should have done when the serpent came into the garden just take a big old stick and smack it until it's dead he was called to guard the garden and he didn't and yet one day the offspring of the woman would come who would do that the serpent would bite his heel and he would crush the serpent's head this promise is shot through all of the old testament and one of the ways it's picked up as it builds towards fulfillment is in this idea of a shepherd. Listen to 
Ecclesiastes chapter 34. Ecclesiastes chapter 34, verses 11 to 16. What has happened is that God's shepherds or kings have been unfaithful to teach Israel how to fear God and keep his commandments. Even his kings have failed. And in light of this failure, he says this. Ezekiel 34, verse 11 to 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. See, all through ancient Israel, shepherds were raised up, kings, who were meant to lead God's people in fearing him and in keeping his commandments, And they all failed. Even the really good ones. Right? We read about King David and think, man, maybe this is the guy. And he just utterly fails. Numbering Israel. Having an affair with Bathsheba. All of these things. Straying away from the Lord and his commandments. And his son Solomon, though he is wise and though he gives us this book of Ecclesiastes. Ultimately what he does is departs from his own wisdom. He eventually fails. So God, in response to that, says, you know what? I will shepherd my people. I will gather them myself. And I will lead them to graze on the mountains of Israel. I will lead them to a rich pasture. He says, a little bit later in Ezekiel 34, verses 23 to 24, that he'll do this through a future king in the likes of David. Verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When Solomon wrote these words in Ecclesiastes, saying that these words of the wise are given by the one shepherd, he was looking for that one shepherd, that promised shepherd that would one day come and would do this for God's people. The reason... That we have hope when we read Ecclesiastes. The reason that we have confidence is because that one shepherd has come. Jesus Christ is that one shepherd. He talks about himself this way, especially in John 10. Listen to what he says. John 10 verse 1 to 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. 
The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is what Jesus came to do as the one shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep to lead them into these green pastures that Ezekiel 34 recorded God promising the difference. What was unexpected, what the preacher could have not even dared hope for is that instead of just giving wise words, which the one shepherd did in Ecclesiastes. Instead of just giving wise words, this one became the incarnate word and wisdom of God. In John 1, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The wisdom from God in Jesus Christ dwelt among us, came and shepherded us in person, in body. He entered into the ruins of Eden as the shepherd. He entered into the destruction that we have all caused because of sin. He entered in for the sake of recreating, bringing to this ruins of Eden a newness, a beauty that can only be described as a new heavens and a new earth. He did this by fulfilling what you and I were called to do. Right? He did this by fearing God and keeping his commandments. This is how the son accomplished his work. This is how the good shepherd brought us to green pastures and still waters. He kept God's commandment. God had sent him for the sake of dying for you and I, and he obeyed it perfectly. He did it in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of his father, trusting in him completely. He not only did that in our place, but in us. He undoes the effects of the ruins of Eden. He undoes the effects of the curse by in you and me and all who trust in him, putting a new heart, a heart that is no longer bound to sin, but a heart that is able to keep God's commands. A heart now that out of the motivation of love responds to the love shown us in Christ Jesus to obey. Because this true shepherd has come, we are no longer bound to live in the ruins of Eden filled with vanity and hopelessness and meaninglessness. But we are instead 
bound to live in light of this one true shepherd and in light of the fullness of God's plan to unite all things together in him, as Paul says in Ephesians. We are called to follow this shepherd, living wisely under the sun, which is the subtitle of our series. Living wisely under the sun is ultimately following the son, Jesus Christ. That's how we live wisely in the ruins of Eden. We listen to his voice. We stick with his flock. Right? And we hope in him. We follow him all the way to glory. This is what it looks like to fear God and keep his commandments. Following this one shepherd. This path, friends, will lead you to lasting joy and gain. It was in Eden. It is under the sun. And this will forever be the path to joy. Fearing God and keeping his commandments. Even in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Where his commandments are not burdensome, but joy. So friends, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the end of the matter. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you have entered into the mess that we have made and that you have accomplished victory over sin and death in your death and that you have assured us of a future hope in your life. What a good gift this is. Would you help us by your spirit to hear your voice and to follow it? Would you help us by your spirit to hear your voice and follow it together with one another? And would you help us by your spirit to hear your voice and follow it all the way to glory? This call, Lord, is incredibly simple. And yet it's feels so difficult, so beyond our reach. I thank you that you have taken what is beyond our reach from a human perspective and you have made it possible by your spirit working in us. So thank you for accomplishing what we could not. Help us to live like you really have. We pray. Amen.